The Midwife Crisis podcast will touch on sensitive topics regarding the human body, sexuality, pregnancy, and all aspects of women's health care and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Kate. That's PR. And this is The Midwife Crisis. A podcast where we take a look at the curious world of women from the perspective of midwifery, race, culture, and sexuality, because it's not just you. Welcome back. We hope you tuned in to our microsode where we talked more on having a work-life balance as a midwife. And if you haven't had a chance to tune into our previous episodes, please do so. They're fun and informative. That's right. And so today we want to talk a little bit about a type of birth that some of you may or may not have heard of before, something called VBAC. This is a pretty special episode. It's one that we're excited about because it's exciting for us to talk about such a serious topic. But in addition to that, you guys encourage us to talk about this. So we want to thank you, our listeners, um, for this topic. So here we go. What does VBAC mean? Well, to explain that, we need to explain a few different terms. Um, There's something called a trial of labor, which is a planned attempt at a vaginal birth for a woman who's had a previous C-section. And then there is the success of that or the VBAC, the vaginal birth after a cesarean delivery. So basically, that's when a woman has a trial of labor and a successful one. She has a vaginal birth. Um, So why is this important? C-section rates have increased um, from about 21% in the 90s. So when I was a youngin, and now they're up to about 33% in the 2010s. You always have to emphasize (laughs) your age. I just, I'm a kid of the 90s, you know. Um, Because this is such a high percentage of women, so about a third of women will deliver by C-section, we need to think more about what we're supposed to do for women and people who have previous cesarean births with their next pregnancies. And so that's why this topic is important. So before we delve into the facts and figures, um, why don't we talk a little bit about our personal experiences taking care of these women, and then we can get into the nitty gritty and try and figure out why it's not just you. Okay, yeah. So basically, in my personal experience, I am still a baby midwife, uh, and so I'm a little bit newer to this, but I've been around the block a little bit as a labor and birth nurse, and then um, now for basically four years as a uh, midwife. So in my personal experience in both of those roles, I can tell you that um, the different practices, so the different healthcare providers and groups of healthcare providers, um, the policies in the hospital, the hospital rules, uh, different different cultures, all of these things influence what we can offer women as far as um, births after having a cesarean. Um, and, you know, I think it's important when we're talking about this to think about all the people involved. So when I was a nurse, I remember just thinking, well, it's simple. She wants a vaginal birth. We try to give her a vaginal birth. Um, but now as a healthcare provider, I know that there's more liability. There's more things related to that decision. Um, and so that makes me think a little bit about a patient that I have had as a midwife. So working as a midwife, I had a patient who had had a prior C-section had come to our practice because she was hoping to have a vaginal birth. Um, and I work in a collaborative practice with midwives and doctors. So she'd had one previous C-section, 
uh, a low transverse incision, meaning a low incision over the um, lower uterine segment, which means she was probably a good candidate. And so as a newer midwife, uh, she came in and was in labor and I caught her second baby. She had a successful vaginal birth. Um, And so with her third pregnancy, we talked a lot about it and she had every intention of having another vaginal birth. So she happened to come in while I was on call and was in very active labor, had a very quick birth, nice, easy, you know, baby came out great, delivered quickly and everything seemed great until she was getting ready to go upstairs to postpartum. And she started developing really significant abdominal pain. Um, She had some rigidity in her abdomen. It just sort of looked distended. Um, And the pain she was having was up really high, which was not entirely normal after a vaginal birth. Usually Mm -hmm. after you deliver your baby, your uterus gets a lot smaller and the cramping and pain that you feel is more pelvic, but this was an upper abdominal pain Mm -hmm. and it scared the pants off of me. My uh, attending physician that I worked with had already gone home. Um, And so with the help of the amazing residents at our job, um, I got some imaging and looked at her belly and we did some lab work and we monitored her vital signs and she ended up being just fine. But for... About an hour or so uh, during this time when we were working her up, I thought, holy moly, she ruptured her uterus, which is a risk that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and she's going to bleed out. And now she has three kids and no one's going to take care of them. And and I was just really terrified. And um, the type of birth she had had, she had gotten a little bit of Pitocin, which we'll also talk about as, as a sort of risk factor for this uterine rupture. And I was really blaming myself. And I said to you know, the uh, high risk attending that was at the hospital, I said, I will never give someone Pitocin again for a trial of labor. I'm just so freaked out now. Uh, But what ended up happening was she was fine. Everything was fine. And then when I saw her for her postpartum visit, she was so thankful. She said to me, I am so thankful that you've given me this opportunity to have two vaginal births. She was thankful that we monitor her so closely, that we kept her on the labor floor, you know, that I stayed by her bedside and was continuing to check her vitals and her bleeding and making sure she was normal. And she was really also thankful for the transparency. She told me, you know, I heard you saying that I'm worried about you and I'm worried that this is what's going on. And I felt so good about our communication. And she really had felt that even if she was going to end up with a worst case scenario, which for her might've been a surgery, might've been removal of her uterus, something like that. um, She was just so thankful that she had been given that opportunity to have that process. And you know, what I took away from that was, although it was scary for me and the risk is there for you as a provider, um, as with a lot of different types of birth, one of the most important pieces is the patient's perspective and and how they feel coming out of it. So yeah, that's a little bit of a, of one of my experiences. Do you want to share I, yours? Yeah, I do. But I think it's also, um, I, I was, as you were telling your story, I was thinking to myself when you said, oh, shoot, she ruptured her uterus. Or were you thinking to yourself, oh, shoot, I ruptured her uterus. Right. Well, right. Exactly. That's exactly. I was thinking it was me. (laughs) We take responsibility. We Mm -hmm. take this, the care that we give to women, we take very seriously. And when something happens, um, we look to ourselves first. Yeah. 
for who's responsible for what happened, whether it doesn't matter if you did everything the way you were supposed to do it, we just hold ourselves accountable. And I think that that's something that's really important. And so when you said she ruptured, I thought she never said that because she didn't (laughs) think that the patient ruptured her own uterus. It's a, it's a constant battle. Um, something that I remember hearing a lot in midwifery school was to take your ego out of the birth, you know? So it's like, has really nothing to do with you. We know that whether we're hands-on up that person's butt, like all up involved in their birth, or if they're birthing at home, you know, having a baby, the outcomes a lot of times are the same. Um, And so we're just sort of there in a supportive way. And of course, coming from a place of education and all of that, but it's really hard to not uh, put yourself as, as the troublemaker. So I appreciate that input. (laughs) It it definitely is. Um, Because I am a dinosaur midwife. No, I'm not a dinosaur midwife. Gently seasoned, lightly seasoned. I want to be spicily seasoned, spicy. Jerk, jerk chicken. (laughs) Somewhere in there. Something. Something. Yeah. (laughs) I I have to help you with your cooking. (laughs) Anyways. um, Yeah. Because I'm seasoned, um, I had some experiences back in the early aughts, as we say, when you're old, Mm -hmm. um, early 2000s. and that was, and I mentioned the time frame, and I'll tell you why in a second. I had uh, three patients in succession in a, over a six-month period that I was caring for who were all trying for a vaginal birth after cesarean. And um, all three, for different reasons, were receiving either for augmentation or for induction, were receiving Pitocin. And all three had epidurals because that's we tend to do that early on when you are um, receiving Pitocin and when you have a vaginal birth after cesarean. And all three um, had their uterus rupture. And um, and that makes me clammy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was it's very interesting because that was during a time period when they were uh, when uh, surgically patients were having these thing called like a single layer closure of their cesareans. And so, um, and looking back, it turns out that these patients had had that kind of closure and that's something that since then has, they no longer do, but, um, it caused an uptick in the, um, sort of a rise of unsuccessful vaginal births after cesarean and an increase in the uterine rupture rate and that kind of thing. And there are other factors as well, but it's just sort of something interesting to, to sort of interesting thread, common thread in these three patients. And so at the end of the day, I, at the third, third, and they say these things happen in threes and people say those kind of things all the time. And I hate it when they say that because I'm not a, there's not a place for superstition in our, in our line of work. I feel and I'm just not that kind of a person. I'm more I'm more faith based than superstition based. But uh, I'm superstition based, and I believe in threes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then you get your wish because I got my three. And that, and at that point, I said I'm not gonna um, I'm not going to induce any more VBACs, and I'm not going to give pitocin to any more VBACs. And in fact, I don't even wanna I don't even wanna work with vaginal births. I don't want to do the trials. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. The moment, if they come in spontaneous, okay. But the moment they need Pitocin or they need any kind of assistance, I'm out. 
um, just count me out. And so for some of my attendings, that was right up their alley. And they said, fine, how about we don't even offer as soon as they come in, let's just do a cesarean, offer a cesarean. And for the others, they said, well, no, let's look at the facts. And if that's something that they want, and I can work with them, and I'll be glad to do it. And you can stand down. I wasn't going to desert them because that's not my nature as a provider, but I didn't want to participate in the risk. I just couldn't. I couldn't. On one of the patients, when they opened her skin, the baby was right there. Like there was just, yeah, the baby was there. There was the water, the bag of water and the baby. So (laughs) that because I went in for her for her birth into the operating room. So that was enough to just drive me all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And um, there were a couple of, uh, so that my first take home lesson was that I didn't want to, I didn't want to participate. And so it skewed me to that, to that side. And um, I wasn't the only one. There are many hospitals that felt that way, you know, with those kinds of um, events happening. And some smaller institutions were saying, no, they weren't even going to offer vaginal births after cesareans in rural settings and small, you know, small institutions where they didn't have the capacity to perform emergency procedures and things like that. But in the end, just like all things that wound you, you have a scar and it heals. And because I, I got wounded by those experiences, you heal and you learn that that is not, you know, if you get a burn, the burn, you, you want to stay away from what's hot. But over time, you have to go back to cooking. And so you learn how to do it and do it carefully and not get yourself burned. And so there was a lesson there. I want to take care of all of my patients. I'm not just going to abandon them because they have certain circumstances. But you have to just be judicious about how you're going to um, care for them and give them good information and balance your your um risk versus your, the benefits of what they're trying to accomplish with regard to their birth experience. And so I did go back to um, providing, you know, TOLAC um, vaginal births after cesarean, caring for those patients and, and having successful um, VBACs. And I did not, I have not since, and th- that this was in the early 2000s and now we're 2019. I have not since had another uterine rupture yay. since those three. So yeah, applause, applause, yay. But, um, and and we have now tools that we use and methods of risk assessment and um, we're very careful about how we counsel and that kind of thing so that everyone there is transparency and so that the patient knows and the provider knows and we'll all understand what, what we're getting ourselves into. Um, and we want to make a safe decision for mom and for baby. Um, but I think the other lesson there is that, you know, you, you learn and then you go back and you try to do better. You don't just quit. You don't quit that procedure. You don't quit that process. And so, um, and, and you move on. And so, you move on to methods that are more objective, not just subjective and just, you know, just take your ball and leave the game. I definitely think there's something to be said for experience. Um, But at the same time, yeah, we have to, midwifery is not medicine, but it is also based in research and science. And we have to really honor 
all all aspects of that. So yeah, I think that sounds great. I'd let you tolak me any day. <laughs> I wouldn't tolak you for all the money in the world. <laughs> Just kidding. That's because you're like my fourth child, and you shouldn't you shouldn't take care of your kin. Any, anyway, anyhow. <laughs> When we come back, we're going to talk about why we get so worked up about this and what are the risks and the benefits in just a moment. Midwife Crisis Podcast talking about feedback. So we talked a little bit about our own experiences, and now we want to talk a little bit about why we get so worked up about this, what's so tumultuous about this topic. And the big issue is that there are risks and benefits. So while VBAC can be a safe and reasonable option for most women, the trial of labor decision or the elective repeat C-section decision has different risks and benefits depending on the woman and her baby. Um, The majority of women who are good candidates for a trial of labor, about 74% who attempt it, will have a vaginal birth, but that's not without risks. So the main risk that we sort of touched upon when PR was talking about the baby, you know, when they opened the skin and the baby was sitting right there in the abdomen, that is a product of something we call uh, uterine rupture. And uterine rupture is the primary risk of concern for women who labor after one or more cesarean births. So the incidence of uterine rupture in women who've had a vaginal, I'm sorry, who've had a C-section is about 4.7 out of 1,000 when they have a VBAC versus 0.3 out of 1,000 when they have a repeat C-section. So you're really almost eliminating the risk entirely by having elective repeat C-section. The risk of uterine rupture, of course, varies based on a couple different factors. So the type of incision the woman had on her uterus, so things like a T incision have an increased risk of uterine rupture, as well as previous uterine surgeries. So things like myomectomies, where they remove fibroids, that can cause some thinning or scarring of the uterus. Those also increase the woman's risk of rupture. Especially if it's a myomectomy that went through the entire uterine muscle. If you have something that's just like a stem was removed, and that's a little bit different situation. Yeah. So this is why it's really important to talk to your provider in detail about these issues. Yep. And definitely if you're changing providers or if you've had any surgeries, it's really important to get that documentation so we can read those reports and really understand um, what you've got going on inside. So there have been no reported maternal deaths due to uterine rupture as of this NIH uh, bulletin put out in 2010, which shocked me because I just thought that women died from it. Um, But that's not the primary cause of death. Um, but overall, 14 to 33% of women will need a hysterectomy if their uterus ruptures. So they may not die, but they have up to, you know, a third uh, of an increased chance of needing to have their uterus completely removed and, you know, the sequelae that come along with that. Additionally, 6% of uterine ruptures will result in perinatal death. So this is the real piece that concerns people. Any type of risk to their fetus um, makes people very concerned, of course. Uh, So people think, you know, 6% of uterine rupture can cause my baby to die. I'm not going to take that risk. Or some people will look at it and say, well, 
I only have a maybe 20% chance of my uterus rupturing. And if that happens, only a 6% chance, meaning a 94% chance that everything will be fine. So I'm going to take that risk. So you can look at it in either way. Decent job with the math, considering you were up all night catching babies. I really was. And math is not my strong suit. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah. And so basically, there's an overall risk of uh, 20 fetal deaths per 100,000 women who undergo a trial of labor. So again, if you look at that number, any number sounds scary when you're talking about babies, you know, not surviving a, a labor and a birth, but it's actually quite a small number. Um, and failed trial of labor after cesarean. So that's when you try for the VBAC, but it's not successful and you need a, an elective repeat C-section. That increases the risk of maternal infection um, as well as fetal infection. It increases the risk of hemorrhage and also some other complications. Uh, and additionally, when people do have a vaginal birth after a cesarean versus an elective repeat C-section, there is a slightly increased risk of injury to the baby, things like brachial plexus injury, which is where the baby comes through the birth canal and can have injury to the collarbone, uh, the arms. It can be a nerve injury. It can be temporary or permanent. Um, but so that is a risk that is slightly increased when women have this vaginal birth. I don't remember if you said this, but 74% of, um, of women, of people who attempt vaginal birth, um, after cesarean are going to be successful. Did you say that? I don't remember, but I think I did, I think but either way we should important. tout that. Cause that's a huge number. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a huge, that's number. a huge number. Like and I think three, it's really important to know of those who try. And that is important. Um, you know, the benefits of having a vaginal birth after cesarean are of course the same benefits as, as with a vaginal birth. If you had never had a cesarean, you know, you're going to have a shorter hospital stay. Having a cesarean is a major abdominal surgery. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a major surgery and a, and a human is being removed from your abdomen. And that's no small feat. And so with it comes, you know, um, all of the issues that Kate mentioned uh, just a moment ago. But so if you don't do it, you're going to have a shorter hospital stay. You will have hopefully decreased blood loss, assuming you don't have like a hemorrhage of any kind, decreased risk of um, a deep vein thrombosis because you're not going to be in the bed. You're not going to be confined. You'll be up and active and moving around. And in overall sense, a greater sense of well-being. Um, since cesarean is a major procedure, giving birth in a more physiologic manner, it's, it stands to reason, reason that you, your recovery would be shorter, it would be easier, it would be more um, sort of positive. Uh, you, you sort of feel more empowered because you, you were able to accomplish, you know, th this birth process. Now, that's not to say giving birth getting your baby into the world is how you get your baby into the world mm -hmm. and getting your baby into the world in a healthy fashion is what, you know, for us is the ultimate goal. But, um, you know, can being able to accomplish a physiologic birth is a really huge thing for a lot of women and it is a very empowering. And so, um, we are, we do try to be very supportive of that, the risk of maternal morbidity, like needing a blood transfusion, hemorrhaging and needing a blood transfusion admission to intensive care, those are all greater with repeat elective cesarean section. Even if you just, you know, right from the start said, I'm not going to ha try to have a vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to schedule my C-section. 
my family's going to make a bunch of casseroles and put them in the freezer and, and they're going to be there for me. And that's how we're going to do this thing. Um, you still have increased risk of, of those kinds of um, debilitating uh, factors like the, the hemorrhage and the bleeding and the trans- need for transfusion and a need to go to, you know, a special care uh, situation afterwards. Um, VBAC reduces the likelihood of those situations uh, associated with multiple cesareans because each cesarean with it comes increased issues, mm-hmm. more scar tissue, more difficulty sort of getting to the baby and getting through that scar tissue to have a safe procedure. Um, and there is the placental issue. Um A little known fact is that your placenta sort of attaches itself to the uterus in one spot, one time. Mm -hmm. So that each, if you have many children, it will use that one spot per child. If you have scarring on your uterus in the form of a C-section, that, that sort of uses up uh, a large swaths of, of area that your placenta can attach to. So it, it attaches to those areas. It does so in sometimes an abnormal fashion. Mm-hmm. And so it can grow through that scar. It can go through that scar and through your uterus. And that is no bueno. No, that is no bueno. That creates a very um, dangerous situation because if it does and it goes through and attaches to other organs or outside of the uterus, that's when you then have to remove the uterus and you have to, you can't just remove pieces of placenta and leave it behind. Sadly, you cannot. No. It must go. It's a temporary organ. It is very temporary and it everything has to come out and anything that it's attached to must go with it. And so that creates a very emergent and difficult situation, challenging situation for the And that risk does increase with each C-section. And so that does increase the more C-sections that you have and the more children that you have. So that's that's another issue. Um, The overall estimates of maternal death number um, 3.8 or almost 4 per 100,000 women who undergo a trial of labor compared to 13.4 per 100,000 live births for elective repeat cesarean section. That's elective repeat cesarean section. So that's if you just plan the whole thing out, not got, not that you went into labor and then this is what happened emergently, you went in to have a C-section. You made an appointment for a C-section and the whole thing was done very calmly. So you still have like four, three, four times the, the risk of having um, a maternal death um, from repeat cesarean section over trying for a vaginal um, uh, trial of labor. Um, and so there is also uh, increased risk of laceration to the fetus, mm. to the baby. Um, and this one is not... It's a bummer. It's a big bummer. Uh, you guys remember how Nellie used to wear that Band-Aid across his face? Yes. That's like that's like what these babies need. They get a little cut in their face, need a little Nelly Band-Aid. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like the baby is born with like little 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 tribal little tribal scar on the face because um or where whatever presenting part gets cut because that is a risk. And and sometimes that they should be mentioning that risk when they're consenting you for C-section that sometimes the baby gets cut in the process. And so it's an unfortunate possible risk of having the surgery, whether it's elective repeat or emergent, or that's always a risk is that the baby is going to get in the way of the, of the knife. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about that and we're talking about risks to baby. Um, but, you know, when we're looking at the mortality rates with a trial of labor um, and a successful vaginal birth, the mortality rates are much lower for mom. With an elective repeat C-section, yeah. the mortality rates are a lot lower for baby. And so... The hard That's an part, important distinction. Right. And the hard part about our job is that there's never just one patient when no, we're talking about obstetrics. You always. have at least at two. At least two. At least two. And so you have to really balance those risks for each of them. And that's why we say different maternal factors, different fetal factors, things like that can skew our decision making a little bit one way or the other. But yeah, it's an interesting distinction. You know, we're always worried about someone and it's not always the same person. So. Right, right. And you try to balance that. You want to keep both parties safe, but um, it, it kind of goes back and forth on who's at greatest risk and what you're trying to do. Trying to save everyone and make everyone in the end be That's healthy. That's the goal. Goal is mom comes in, mom and baby slash babies leave. Mom or dad. Amen. Amen. Um, all right, cool. So we talked a little bit about some of those risks. What are some factors that increase the likelihood that a woman will be able to have a VBAC, a woman or a non-binary person? Um, so greater maternal height and lower body mass index. So body mass index below um, 30. Mm. Both really increase that, you know, increase that likelihood that you'll have a successful vaginal birth. And, you know, it's funny, every tall person we ever see that's pregnant, we get so pumped. We'll be like, ooh, how tall are you? And how big are your feet? And yeah, because, you know, these are the women who a lot of times do birth really, really nicely, really well. And we know that they, you know, have this increased likelihood of having a vaginal birth. Additionally, if you have had a a vaginal birth before, of course. So let's say you had one vaginal birth um, and then you needed a C-section the next time. Maybe it was a little emergency. Maybe, you know, the baby was malpresented, meaning breach or something like that. If you've had a vaginal birth in the past, followed by a C-section, you have a higher likelihood that you will have a successful VBAC um, with each VBAC that you have. So like my patient who I had who had a cesarean birth and then a VBAC, she was more likely to have another successful VBAC because she had done it before. Um, non-recurring indications for a C-section. So again, things like having a breech baby or malpresented baby, having multiples, having a cord prolapse, things like that, that have nothing to do with you trying to labor or trying yes. to change your cervix or trying to push. Um, those are all things that, that, you know, should help you have a successful feedback. And um, finally, women who have previously delivered babies weighing less than 4,000 grams. And this kind of comes back to that whole, like, you know, the square peg in a round hole thing, you know, you, it's got to fit. So for babies that are more quote unquote average or, you know, a, not a large vegetational age baby, they do have, you know, this increased likelihood of having a vaginal birth. And so all of these factors that can help increase your likelihood of having a vaginal birth after a cesarean are available to us as tools that we can use um, in what's called a VBAC calculator. There's a couple different um you know, uh, governing bodies that have made these calculators, but basically they ask a lot of these questions, you know, how tall are you? How old are you? Have you had a vaginal birth before? What was the indication for your first C-section and help give us a number so that we can really help sort of guide patients when they're making this decision. And when we're making this decision together with them, you know, being able to say, Hey, listen, you have an 80% chance you're going to have a successful vaginal birth or, you know, it's not looking, it's not looking so hot. You're short, a little (laughs) overweight. You pushed for six hours last time. Your baby was 12 pounds. Uh, I don't don't know if it's going to happen. You know, so 
So those are some factors that can increase your likelihood of having a successful feedback. Sounds unfair. It is. Um, uh, on that, on the flip side, uh, factors that uh, decrease vaginal birth after cesarean, there there are a few as well, and some are the opposing factors that Kate mentioned. Um, you know, uh, your size. Um, so, you know, of course she said, if you're tall and slender and all those things that I'm not, oh, I'm tall. I forgot forgot that part. And you're curvy, which is perfect. But, um, to, I, I need to be like another foot taller to get my, (laughs) to get my BMI right. Listen, uh, don't even get me started on BMIs and gross charts. I think they're baloney, but all right, go ahead. They aren't, (laughs) they are baloney. I agree. Um, but, uh, one of the strongest demographic predictors of, um, of regarding vaginal delivery after child labor is race and ethnicity. I'm sorry. Um, black and Hispanic women have lower rates of VBAC of successful VBAC than non-Hispanic white women. They, interestingly, they also have lower rates of uterine rupture, which is a curious thing, but, um, And I don't know that anyone's done work regarding what that's about. But um, in addition to those factors, increasing um, maternal age, single marital status, and education of less than 12 years are also factors that decrease your success rate. Women who deliver at rural and private hospitals and the uh, the presence of maternal disease, such as hypertension, diabetes, asthma, seizures, renal disease, thyroid disease, and heart disease, also um, decrease, their success rate is decreased. Now, if you think about it, having hypertension, diabetes, those are things, kidney disease, heart disease, um, those are issues that go along with kind of being round, a little bit shorter, a little bit rounder, having the little bit higher um, BMI. And I'm saying a little bit, but I really mean a lot of bit um, because that just um, that whole roundness brings with it a list of um, of ailments and diseases that um, cause many problems in your health picture, but certainly um, contribute to your lack of success with vaginal birth. And I think it's worth noting too, that some of these things are modifiable and some of them are not, you know? So if you're, obviously you can't change your race or ethnicity. If you are predisposed to have, you know, congenital issues, heart disease, or, you know, polycystic kidneys or any of these things that could potentially, you know, just be sort of part of who you are, you know, it's not necessarily modifiable. So it's not your faults or anything like that. Um, some things you might be able to improve, of course, if you're able to improve your health, if your diabetes is, you know, related to being overweight because of a sedentary lifestyle or something like that. These are things that you can potentially try to modify. Um, but yeah, I mean, some, some of them you can't. And some things will worsen like, uh, your hypertension. Sometimes it worsens in pregnancy, your diabetes worsens, can worsen in pregnancy. If you already had those pre-existing conditions, your renal disease, if you, if it's related to your diabetes. So it sort of becomes like a layer cake of issues. Um, and since I brought it up, you know, regarding issues of race and ethnicity, um, let me just comment a little bit on that. You know, I said that women of color have a lower risk of uterine rupture, but also lower rates of successful VBAC, um, significantly, uh, they're less likely than white women to have successful VBAC. And uh, there are some mitigating factors there. You know, 
these are women who also tend to be of uh, lower socioeconomic status, have less access to care, lower education. But even when you account for these factors, um, studies have shown that, uh, so if you line, you know, these same women up and they have, they are of higher education, of higher socioeconomic status, and um, they're, and they're not older because older women also, you know, they tend to have higher rates of C-section and lower rates of successful VBAC. Um, Then they still will, not be successful. And so I think that we haven't figured out, you know, that speaks to, you know, um, disparity in healthcare. It speaks to, you know, maternal child uh, mortality and morbidity issues with regard to race. And that's something that we haven't, we're just now starting to scratch the surface in terms of research and people being curious as to what's going on here. There's something wrong with this picture and we need to do something about it. And so, um, I'm really looking forward to um, participating in some of that work and um, looking forward to seeing what the what what comes of it, because everybody we need to know and we need to do something about it. Um, In this case, women and children are are being, um, you know, we think we're doing the best that we can for them, but we need to figure out are we or aren't we? And if what are we what's missing? Where are the holes? that are preventing us from having uh, the same outcomes for all, all women, all people that have a uterus. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of all people that have uteruses and different minorities, we also have, you know, sexual and gender minorities that can be significantly impacted by this as well. Now, again, as far as sexual and gender issues, this is quote unquote newer, not in that it didn't exist before, but it's something that we are now really approaching as a culture and as a healthcare system, you know, starting to just do this research. So there's not a ton of it, but I can tell you that um, this population, the LGBTQIA plus population does have an increased uh, incidence of requesting primary cesarean birth. Um, and those uh, gender nonconforming, non-binary um, or transgender men who are using testosterone prior to pregnancy were actually a third more likely to deliver by cesarean. And a lot of that was actually by request. You know, we have to consider things like when you're talking about gender and non-binary issues, what your relationship is with your body. I know that there um, are many people who are gender non-conforming or, you know, trans men who maybe have a difficult relationship with their vulva, with their vagina, with Mm -hmm. their, with their uterus. And so potentially they want to try to uh, get away from that aspect, you Mm -hmm. know, and and maybe having an abdominal birth, a cesarean birth is a little bit potentially easier. Maybe that's more healing for them. Um, you know, so I think that's a factor that can certainly impact things. Additionally, many people that are of the LGBTQIA plus community require uh, assistive reproductive technology. So things like IVF, IUI, um, donor sperm, things like that. And those all increase your risks and severity of diseases like preeclampsia, hypertensive issues, uh, preterm labor. And all of these can increase your risk of need for intervention and subsequently C-section. Okay. Um, and finally, we do see an increased risk of comorbidities, things like diabetes, hypertension in uh, lesbians, in uh, bisexual women, in people that are gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. And if you are using testosterone or have at some point, that also increases your risk of having diabetes, 
hypertension. Um, and so all of these issues are potentially going to set you up for an increased likelihood of having a cesarean birth and then potentially make it more challenging should you want to have a trial of labor or a vaginal birth after. So um, again, just like with everything we do, we see that it affects people based on not just their health, but also their culture, their race, their ethnicity, um, their sexuality, all of these aspects. Always many factors, which most people like cakes. That's why I always use the layer cake metaphor. I don't really like cake. You don't like cake? I like pie. Oh, I like ice cream cake. <laughs> okay. And I guess that has layers. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. If it's a good one. Um, well, we only have good ones. We only <laughs> use good ones. Um, there are additional factors that influence decisions for patients that we um, haven't we sort of touched upon some of them, but didn't really uh, dig in deep. And we're not going to dig in deep now, but I just want to mention, you know, um, one of the factors is support. Do you have support? It's a major surgery. I talked about that. But do you have help at home? You can't um, drive for two weeks after. So are you a single mom? Do you have kids you got to get to school or go to the grocery store? You know, that's a big that's a big piece. I had a patient once who had... Um, she was having her second child and her first child was six years old. And this mom was um, 52 and um, well, early fifties. And uh, she was having her, as I said, her second cesarean. And um, we had to say what, you know, who's helping you at home? Do you want to consider, um, you know, a trial of labor, having a vaginal birth would make things a little bit easier, actually. Potentially. Um, Side note that we actually talked about earlier is this is assuming that you had a nice vaginal birth. As we know, you can have a pretty significant also recovery from a vaginal birth. But it you could in the end. Yes, you could. Yes, you we, could. As we well know. Hands are raised right now. Both yes. of us. High five to Vaginus Club. <laughs> Uh, in the end, she wound up having a repeat cesarean. She had to recruit some some major help from neighbors and from folks like that. But um, that's a big deal. And imagine it, it was a big deal for her for many reasons because she had a six-year-old. Her six-year-old had some issues. She um, was older herself and her recovery was not going to be an easy one. And I think that she made the right decision, but uh, it was not an easy situation. Um, stigma is another situation. Brazilian women have increased risk of C-section uh, just by preference. It's something I've had patients who moved here from Brazil and they say, when do I schedule my C-section? Mm -hmm. And that's like part of the routine visit. And we say, wait, what? We're not going to schedule your C-section. And in the end, I was able to connect that person with someone who would do a primary C-section mm -hmm. or a re elective repeat C-section because that's what they've done. And she's like, I'm going back home and I'm this is what I want to do. And so that's fine. Alternatively, um, some women may feel guilty about not attempting a, a trial of labor after cesarean. And I had a patient um, that um, expressed that she, you know, her coworkers were encouraging her to try labor, um, after cesarean and her first baby, she had gotten to fully had pushed, pushed, pushed and was unsuccessful and wound up having to have a cesarean for not, um, 
you know, for not progressing to, to birth. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, but I'm thinking it's not so going to be such a good idea. In the end, she wound up opting for repeat cesarean and her baby was far bigger. Her first baby was greater than 4,000 grams, which um, Kate talked earlier about that being a risk for not being successful. And her second baby was bigger than their first, first baby. So she made the right decision, but she said her coworkers were kind of um, judging and, and discouraging her. And she sort of felt some kind of way about it. And that's not really fair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want to meet people where they are yep. and try and be encouraging and p- try to be supportive. And so that's, and this is where the birth community can actually be a hard place. It is. A, it, it is. A, it's very judgy. It can be judgy. Yeah. And we have to, such a huge part of caring for women, again, is exactly what you said, meeting them where they are, but also respecting their decisions. Decisions. They yeah. have to be respected. Yeah. Um, a woman's perceptions of her birth experience, initial parent inter- infant interactions, and ability to perform activities of daily living or initiate breastfeeding may differ based on mode of delivery. So, you know, it may differ based on whether she has a vaginal birth or a cesarean, but if she has a cesarean, all of those things can be accomplished that can be accomplished, whether if she has a vaginal birth. So it it just, you know, it's based on support and it's Mm -hmm. based on your provider also um, connecting you with um, what you need in the community and that kind of thing. And the nature and extent of your informed decision making, you really need to have all of the information or we as providers have to give our patients all of the information and then they make a decision and then we have to respect it. Um, Give them the good info and tell them this is what you recommend, but, um, you know, stand by the decision. And if you can't care for them in the way in which they, which they prefer, then we have to refer. That's right. That's right. And so for providers, you know, we talked about how women are helping to make this decision. And again, it's a hard decision because it's not cut and dry, you know, and and there's lots of different uh, ways that this can go. Uh, A lot of providers should be sort of doing what their professional association guidelines are. So our professional organization is ACNM. Um, for obstetricians, they usually use ACOG. You know, and a lot of these groups are currently doing a big push for really encouraging women to have a trial of labor uh, for all the aforementioned reasons. Um, professional liability concerns are enormous. So the two things that stick out when we talk about the risks are mortality concerns for mom and mortality concerns for baby. And so it stinks. Obstetrics is a very high liability field. Insurance is very expensive in this field because you are likely to, at some point, experience some kind of litigation because it's emotional. It has to do with babies, you know, and women. Our society is very litigious. Um, Yes. You know, everywhere is not as litigious as it is here in the U.S. And so... That's right. um, And so back in the day when potentially, you know, insurance companies might say, well, I won't insure you if you do trial of labor for patients. Right. You know, it's a higher liability. That or was I, a thing. Right. And so that would actually I- impact the providers, you yes. know, d- helping make a decision because if you aren't going to be covered by your insurance, 
you know, by your liability insurance, if you offer the service to women, that's a big risk that you're taking. Right. Um, birth setting issues, you know, is there anesthesiology rapidly available? Are there um, ORs rapidly available? Is there fetal monitoring and maternal monitoring? I mean, what's the nurse to patient ratio? All those things can make a big difference on what can be considered a safe, you know, or potentially not safe uh, trial of labor. Um, and, you know, again, just preferences. We all know and work with and love different providers, midwives and doctors alike who feel very strongly in one direction or the other. And and despite research and or despite whatever other influences, will be really stuck in their decisions, whether those decisions are everyone should have a trial of labor or everyone should have a repeat C-section. Some They're people, humans. Some, yeah, and, and we can be rigid and opinionated. And so, and so all of those things can truly... Um, impact things. For sure. Um, the bottom line, um, as always, is to provide informed decision making, um, provide the risks, benefits and alternatives, be transparent, you know, from as a provider. And if you are the um, consumer, then you need to, you know, really be assertive and, and ask for transparency. If you aren't comfortable Caring for the patient or your practice won't honor her desires. Let her know ahead of time, not at the at the last moment. Yep. Um, and, and that's okay. I think mm-hmm. every patient that I have, you know, in the past needed to refer, not necessarily for this issue, but for different for reasons. Other issues. They mm-hmm. really respect when you're just straight with them. Patients just want the information. They want you to be real. And so if you say, listen, you've had three previous C-sections. I don't think anyone in this practice is going to be comfortable with this. Right. But maybe you'd be better suited here, that patient's going to be really right. appreciative of that. And and it happens and, mm-hmm. and it's okay. That's it's, right. It really is okay. Um, At the end of the day, we just need to really trust women into making the their own correct decisions when they're given all the information. That's, that's really the bottom line. If they are really fully informed, we, we need to trust them. I agree. I think I think we all agree. Well, that's been a great conversation, and yeah, I think you. we're going to wrap up. We'd like to thank Bail Bob Tree Studios, Rev Kev, and our family, and all of our supporters. Um, until next time, wash your hands and much oxytocin, as long as it is carefully monitored. If you've had a previous C-section, bye. bye.